Well, good morning again, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you, and it's great to be back in the pulpit this morning. Uh, Each August, I take three or four weeks out of the pulpit to do some uh, evaluation, uh, to meet with staff, to meet with leaders, to do some strategic planning for the upcoming uh, year, particularly the fall, which is kind of our busiest season of ministry, and we want to have every all the pieces in place and things working as smoothly as possible. And so uh, Steve takes the pulpit reins for a few weeks, and so I appreciate him doing that the last four weeks. But it's great to be uh, back in the pulpit with you and uh, back in our study of Genesis. This has been a, an exciting uh, book study for, for me personally. In um, the last few weeks, we've been doing a sort of children's intro for the kids that are here, and there's not a lot here uh, in the worship service, but this is for you guys to try and clue you into kind of what's happening in the sermon so that you can listen for a couple of things. Usually, you guys can go to children's church, but during the summer, we don't have that. And so let me tell you just a couple of things that you can be thinking about as I uh, give us the sermon in a few minutes. Now, I have four kids, but only two of them are here today. And let's say I decided that for those two, I was going to choose one of them, and I was going to give one of them $50, and then I was going to give that same one a trip with me to Oaks Park, and then we were going to go shopping, and then we were going to go to the swimming pool, and the other one got nothing. What would you say, kids, to that? What would that be like? Not fair. That's exactly right. That was the phrase I was hoping for. Not fair. And I hear that a lot at my house. And sometimes (laughs) I think that myself. It's not fair. Something in life is not fair. Now, Jacob, we're going to read a story this morning about two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob had every right to say not fair or no fair because he was one of two twins, but he was born second. And so he got nothing. Esau got to go to the swimming pool with the dad. He got to go to Oaks Park. He got to do all the fun things. And Isaac really doted on Esau, while Jacob was not. It was not fair. And so Jacob figured a way to turn the tables. He figured a way to make things fair according to him, according to his own calculation. So what I'd like you guys, you kids, to think about is what does Jacob learn after he makes this decision, after this deceit and this trickery, and he gets things how he wants them? What does he then learn? And what would, if you really believed in the things that Jacob learns, that God is a God who is with us and for us and loves us deeply, how would that change those times where you're, you're tempted to say, not fair? Is there something that Jacob learns that maybe would help you to say, not fair, a little bit less? And so think about that. Think about what he's learning. And then maybe ask me or tell me later after the sermon of what it was that he learned and how that might help you say not fair a little less. So this is our Old Testament reading. This is Genesis chapter 28. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. 
There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the east and to the west, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This is the word of the Lord. We use the term dream in a couple different ways to designate two different experiences, two different things. The, the literal sense, it's those images that cross your mind's eye when you're asleep. And Jacob has this in our passage. He has a, a literal dream that takes place that's very evocative. But we also use this term dream metaphorically, such as Martin Luther King when he says, I have a dream. And this means something a bit different. This is a deep desire. This is something that animates our life. This is something that drives us. It drives our decisions. And everybody dreams in both of these ways. Everyone dreams as they fall asleep, and everyone dreams about a better life, dreams about a different country, dreams about a spouse. And these are the things that, these are the dreams, these are the images that cause us to get out of bed in the morning, that drove you to leave your parents' home, to get an education, to get a job, maybe to move to Portland from somewhere else. There is this captivating idea, this captivating dream that you are following, and you may not be able to pinpoint it. You may not be able to describe it in great detail, but it still runs your life. It still is the thing that drives you. And every important decision that you've made and that you will, will make is just determined by how close it gets you to a significant dream, or maybe it's the dream of life. But we all have a problem with this because, in your experience, in my experience, the dream is also very elusive. It's also very elastic. As we approach it, it seems to stretch out farther. It changes. It morphs. When we get close to it and even achieve it, we lack fulfillment and we go for something else. Tom Brady is the quarterback for the New England Patriots, and he's one of the best top ten quarterbacks ever. He's very wealthy. He's dating a supermodel. So according to American standards, he's made it. He's achieved his dreams. It's at the pinnacle of the American dream. He sits down with 60 Minutes for an interview, and 
He's responding to a question. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal. I've reached my life. I've accomplished my dream. But me, I think, God, it's got to be something more than this. I mean, this isn't all it's cracked up to be. What's the answer, the interviewer asked? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Which one of the rings do you like the best? What's your favorite ring? My favorite ring? The next one. The next one is the best. Maybe we're familiar with that experience. We've, we've gotten our dream. Or maybe we failed. Maybe we haven't been able to accomplish our dreams. We don't get the girl. We don't get the job. We don't get the house, the promotion, the degree, the Super Bowl ring. Well, this passage has a lot to tell both of us. Wherever we are in that experience, we've gotten our dreams accomplished or we're still pursuing them and we've failed miserably maybe. We need to see the aloneness of Jacob, the witness of God, and the transformation of the journey. Let me pray briefly for us as we look at these things. Father, many of us in this room do feel alone. We feel lonely. We feel forgotten. We feel that nobody cares. We've had a difficult week at work where we have experienced conflict. We don't know how to get out of it, to solve it. We have conflict in our family, just as Jacob did. And we think it'll never end. And we wonder when that ladder will come down from heaven and you will answer our needs. Father, as we look at how Jacob was alone and how you became with him, that you stood with him, would we find hope in our journey? Would you transform the way that we think about our journey here on earth? And Father, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word? Amen. So Jacob, as I told the kids, is the youngest of two twins, and he cheats Esau out of his birthright and then tricks his father to give his blessing to him instead of Esau so that he becomes the inheritor of his father's estate and his name and all of his property. But it's much more significant than that. In these patriarchal, hierarchical families, birth order was everything. And if you were second, if you came out of the womb even as a twin, second, then you were destined to play second fiddle the rest of your life. You were destined to sit on the bench and play second string for the rest of your life. But Jacob, through scheming, inverts this. And he solves his own solution with the help of his mom. And he impersonates Esau to a very aged, blind father, Isaac. And as Isaac gives him his blessing, he says, you will be Lord and Master over your brother, and he will serve you. So it's not just about property, it's not just about name, but this life that Esau imagined is now inverted, and his little brother, his scheming homebody of a little brother, now has the name of Isaac. And Esau is now destined to live under his authority and serve his younger brother. And so what does Esau do? He vows to kill him. As soon as Isaac dies, I'm going to kill this little twerp, not only out of anger and justice, but 
If he kills him, he'll then be back on top. He'll now be the starter. He'll be number one again. So what does Jacob do? Well, he runs away. He leaves. He says, well, I'm not going to stand here and let Esau kill me. Esau is the burly man. He's out working the fields while Jacob stays at home. And so clearly Esau could take him. And so he flees. He runs. He pursued his dreams of being number one. And where does it leave him? He gets his dream. He achieves it. And yet now he's a refugee. Now he's on the run. Now he's in danger. And the narrator sets the stage here in such a beautiful way because he paints for us what's going on inside of, of, of Jacob psychologically. He paints the psychological picture of Jacob for us. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and laid down to sleep. You see, nighttime in the desert is a very dangerous, very precarious time of day. And especially if you're alone, because you can be eaten, you can starve to death, you can thirst to death. He, his life is hanging on by a thread. The comfort of his father's tents and his property has now been replaced with a rock. He is sleeping on the floor of the desert with a rock under his head. Behind him is Beersheba, where his brother longs to kill him, and ahead of him lies this journey to Uncle Laban, an uncle that he doesn't know, but he's going to find uh, a wife there. And it turns out in the coming chapters that Laban exploits him for many years of hard labor. And where is he? Where is Jacob now? The narrator says he's in a certain place, which means nowhere. He's in a no place. He's achieved his dreams, and yet now he's on the run. He's lost everything. His life is hanging on by a thread, and he's profoundly alone. Now, it's one thing to miss out on your dreams because the world conspired against you, because of circumstances, the stars just never align. But it's another thing entirely to know that your dreams have been reached, and yet your life is falling apart, and you have no one to blame except yourself. What's the lesson here? Is the lesson that, well, he's all alone, but he has God, and that makes everything fine? Not so fast. Because at this point, it doesn't seem that he really knows God at all. He's Abraham's grandson, the patriarch of patriarchs, the founder of the faith. He's his grandson, and he's Isaac's son. It's clear that he knows about God. It's clear that he knows the stories about God, but he doesn't seem to embrace him. In the previous chapter, when he goes into Isaac's tent, he calls him your God. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is your God, Father. He hasn't embraced him yet. And maybe that's where some of us are. We find God interesting. Maybe we're curious about God. We've heard some of the stories and we're captivated by them. We're culturally connected somehow to Christianity, but we haven't yet embraced them. And this chapter is all about God introducing himself as he is to Jacob. It's where, for all practical purposes, Jacob meets God again for the first time. And in town longs to be a safe place for people like that, people like Jacob, People who maybe they grew up in church, maybe they were raised in a Christian home, they have heard the stories, and yet we haven't yet embraced them. 
that in town wants to be a safe place for Jacobs, for people who have questions, who are still looking for answers. That's why we, we exist. It's for you. It's for your questions. It's to assist you in meeting the real God, maybe for the first time, but even if it takes many years. And if you read ahead, you'll see that Jacob's experience, it was not this grand conversion experience that happened instantaneously. God speaks to him, and then his response is, well, maybe. God says, God gives him these great promises, and then what does Jacob say? If you will watch over me, if you will be with me, if you will feed and clothe me, if you will bring me back safely to my father's house. God's already promised these things. He's guaranteed to Jacob that I will do these things. And what does Jacob say? Maybe. If you will do these things, then I will really trust you. Then you will be my God. And isn't this a picture how often how God shows up in our lives? Because it's not often when we're looking for him. It's not often at the end of this grand spiritual quest that God shows up. Some people have those stories. But most of the time, he shows up when we are not looking for him. He shows up at a time when Jacob is alone, in fact, running away from the household of God. He's helpless. He's not seeking God. Where does God show up? In a dream. Jacob is helpless. He's fallen asleep. He's completely passive, and God shows up. He has a dream. And we need to see what this stream tells us about the witness of God meeting the aloneness of Jacob. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Often this story is told of Jacob's ladder, and there's lots of songs and spirituals, especially from slavery, about Jacob's ladder. But it's better described as a ramp or as a stairway, a stairway to heaven. But Led Zeppelin got it wrong. It's not a stairway to heaven. It's a stairway from heaven. It's described as coming out of heaven and resting upon the earth with angels descending and ascending on it. And how do we imagine them? It's not cherubs with wings. It's not precious moment cartoons going up and down the ladder. These are mighty agents of God. These are angels of commerce that are doing the work of God on the earth. In other words, what we see here is that heaven has dealings with the earth, that heaven has dealings with creation. In verse 13, it says, There above it stood the Lord. But the grammar is really unclear what the object is. God stood above the stairway, but if you've got your Bibles with you, there's probably a footnote in them because it could be that God stood above Jacob or God stood beside Jacob. Now, what is the purpose of all this? Why a dream? Well, it's a vision. It's God telling Jacob something that he wasn't able to see while he was awake. He needed Jacob to be passive. He needed Jacob to fall asleep so that God could pull back the curtains of creation to show what is really going on. It's a vision of what is really going on in the world. Jacob's experience is that he's on the run, and that's very real, and it's very pertinent to Jacob's experience. But there's something that transects that reality. 
that's even more important, and it's that God himself is interacting with his world, that there is a ladder, a stairway down from heaven that allows God to work with his creation, to move in his creation, that says that, Jacob, you are actually not alone. I'm pulling back the curtains of creation. And what does Jacob see? It's not a little man throwing levers like Wizard of the Oz, a Wizard of Oz. It's that the creator God who created Jacob, who created the whole world in the first place, has dealings with his creation. But more than that, what does it tell us? It says that God himself comes to Jacob, that he tenderly and compassionately stoops to be with Jacob in his exile. This dream permits the entry of an alternative view of reality. And it's not a morbid review of Jacob's sins and his failings and his shame. It's not a vision of a finger-wagging God, but it's the presentation of an alternate future with God that changes Jacob's situation. It's a future that now is imagined, a future with God and with a God who is with his people intentionally. A few years back, a a couple of medical doctors wrote a, a cultural commentary on the United States, and it was entitled The Lonely American. And they say, Americans in the 21st century devote more technology to staying connected than any, any society in history, yet somehow the devices fail us. Studies show that we feel increasingly alone. Our lives are spent in a tug-of-war between conflicting desires. We want to stay connected, and we want to be free. We lurch back and forth, reaching for both, and are surprised by our sadness when one side actually wins. How much of one should we give up in order to have more of the other? And how do we know when we've got it right? And they go on to argue that our culture views these isolating behaviors of, of desperately working all of the time, working too much, being too busy, always being connected that we can't really stop and pause for a relationship, that we actually view those things with high status, that those are the marks of someone who's important, someone who is significant. And they say people in our society drift away from social connections because of both a push and a pull. The push is the frenetic, overscheduled, hyper-networked intensity of modern, modern life, and the pull is the American pantheon of self-reliant heroes who stand apart from the crowd. That's the culture that we are embedded in. That's the push and the pull that we have to deal with every single day. And so don't we understand Jacob's situation? Don't we know what it's like to feel alone? He's literally alone, but we can be hyper-connected, hyper connected with relationships all, over, all around us and yet still feel isolated and feel alone. We understand what Jacob feels. We understand what it feels like to be dispossessed from our, our own dreams, to be uber-connected and yet feel isolated. But over and over and over in the Bible, God moves toward the alien, towards the forgotten, towards the displaced, the estranged, the lonely, and calls them his people. He moves towards those types of people and says, I will be with you. 
Over and over, the least likely people imaginable hear God saying to them, I will be with you. What does he say to Jacob, this lonely, alienated, displaced, estranged person, this terrible sinner? I am with you. I will watch over you. I will bring you back. I will not leave you. He deceives and lies to his father. He steals from his brother. He's a nobody in a no place. And yet God is willing to throw his lot in with Jacob. And he's willing to throw his lot in with you as well. You see, ultimately, the stairway isn't the way that good people climb up to God, but it's the way that God walks down, the way he enters into a very messy world, and the way that he is with very messy people. There above it stood the Lord, has a footnote that says it could also mean there with him stood the Lord. Both are possible grammatically, but both are correct theologically because we see that the nature of God is that he dwells in heaven, that he brings creation to be out of nothing, that he is supremely holy, that he is transcendent, that he is unapproachable in his holiness, and yet he's the same God who stoops to be with Jacob. He's the same God who is transcendent, and unable to be approached, who comes to Jacob, who is full of sin and full of unholiness, and says, I will be with you. This is one of the unique claims of Christianity, that God is both powerfully other and yet tenderly imminent. He doesn't give a stairway that we can climb up, but he descends, he comes down the stairway to be with us. And Jesus picks up, in just a few verses after the chapter in John that Gene read. And he says about himself what is sketched out in Genesis 28. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, as the Bible unfolds, it's not just this abstract vision, but it's a person. It's Jesus, the Son of God, who becomes Emmanuel, God with us. That he is the stairway. That he is the person who opens up the gate of heaven and brings God literally down into creation to be with his people. God has always been that, spiritually speaking, but now Jesus comes down in bodily form and is God with us. Emmanuel. He's the stairway. And how does this transform Jacob's journey? How does it transform our journey? Well, people who meet God in this way, people that understand that Jesus is the stairway, are tra- find their dreams to be transformed. They find a different meaning to their journey. In the middle of the last century, the psychoanalyst uh, Eric Fromm designated two basic modes of human existence. There's having and there's being. And what he argued is he said that modern culture was concerned primarily, oftentimes only, with one. That we're concerned with having, with consuming, with accumulating. And we can certainly become rich in that area. And many of us, probably most of us in this room are relative to the rest of the world. But we know 
experientially. We know anecdotally that it's possible to have a fortune and yet be utterly empty inside because our inner core is this bottomless pit that always wants more no matter what we dump into it. No matter how much we have, we're still not enough people. But inversely, what we see in Jacob's story, what we see as we understand the teachings of Jesus and how he comes to be with his people, that we can be paupers and yet still be rich. We can be alone and yet not lonely. If we look to the one, if we find our identity and our meaning and our bearing in the one who became poor so that we can become rich, no matter how little we have, we'll be more than enough people. But without becoming more than enough people, our wanting will always outpace our having and we'll be perpetually exhausted and worn out and dissatisfied. This is the alternative way, and this is what Jacob is faced with. Will he embrace this alternative story where in the midst of having nothing, I can not be lonely, but I can have the presence of God? In the, present, in the situation of being in exile, I can know that I have these promises that God himself has given me. He's faced with an alternative way of looking at the world. And will he find it more convincing than the story of fear and guilt that exists in his world actually right there as a refugee? We often open our worship with the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And this song has been sung now for about 500 years, and it's this powerful, driving, triumphant assertion that God is with his people. But it's written by Martin Luther at one of his lowest points in life. In 1527, he was terribly ill. He was continually dizzy. He was having fainting spells. He couldn't preach. He couldn't go about the work that he felt called to do. And the plague was once again approaching Wittenberg. And he writes that he was suspended in the midst of all sorts of fears. Now, we may look back now and say, well, he was probably clinically depressed without, before that was really a thing. He says he was suspended in the midst of all sorts of fears, and he writes to his friend Melanchthon, I spent more than a week in death and in hell. And it was in this period that he writes the hymn with these words, The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who stands beside us. Suspended in the midst of all sorts of fears, in the middle of death and what he calls hell, what does he name that place? He names that place a mighty fortress. What does Jacob name this place? This no place in the middle of nowhere where he's totally alone, what does he name it? He names it Bethel, the house of God. He was in this place and I didn't even know it. God came down and spent the night with Jacob in that place. His desperation opened up the gate of heaven. We need to think, what, what is that place in our lives? What is that place where you feel alone, where you feel homesick, and you don't even know why? What is that place of fear because you don't know what's going to happen next? You have these promises, but tangibly speaking, your life is falling apart. 
What is that place where you failed majestically? What is that place that you don't want anyone to know about? What's the name of that place? That's the place that we're to call Bethel, the gate of heaven, the house of God. Call it the house of God because that's the very place that God longs to be with you in. He's not waiting to wag his finger at all of your secrets and to shame you for your past. He's waiting to liberate you from them. He's waiting to be with you in the midst of those things. Those places in our lives are the very gate of heaven. Those are the places where God takes up resonance in our life unlike any other place. Those are the places where Jesus gives up his life to be in with you and with me. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us a vision of the good life that wouldn't necessarily include having more money, having more things, more possessions. But Father, let us think about the good life as the the life where you are with us. That we could live free from all of the things that we attach importance to. That we're fine if you give them to us. And we don't disparage them, but yet we are happy that you are with us wherever we are and whatever we have or do not have. Father, I pray that you would transform our journey as we that see once again that Jesus gave up his body and his blood to be with us. Let us go from this place with that encouragement and with sensing his presence and his delight over us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.